0: 1780, Charles Wesley was reading a commentary written by Matthew Henry in 1690 on the book of Leviticus. He came upon Leviticus chapter 8, verse 35, that says, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. Henry, 1680, wrote this We have every one of us a charge to keep, an eternal God to glorify, and a mortal soul to provide for needful duty to be done our generation to serve and it must be our daily care to keep this charge for it is the charge of our Lord and Master who will shortly call us to an account about it and it is is to our peril if we neglect it keep it that you die not it is death eternal death to betray the truth we are charged with brother John Wesley wrote a book wrote a song it's in your song book incidentally the song was George W. Bush's favorite song it's the title of his autobiography it's a powerful book A powerful song Psalm 119 verse 97 says oh how I love your law it is my meditation all the day Wesley wrote the song a charge to keep have I a God to glorify a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky In one verse, he talks about, I have this generation to serve. Brother John, do you know that song? What number is it? A charge to keep, have I? Man, I've stumped the band twice. (laughs) Number three. Number three. Maybe we can sing it later. I would try to lead it. <laughs> I went to Russia in 1993 for the first time and went to the city in Ukraine, the Nepropetrovsk, a city of two million people. The gospel had never been preached there and I was privileged to preach. And um, the second week, during, between first week and second week, we a few believers came about and none of them had been baptized yet but I told them we were going to worship on Sunday and my friend Steve Kerr who had the singing, singing ability I have and I conducted that service and we sang some in it it was horrible I went back a year later and that little group had become a group of about 30 Christians yeah not because of me. I was gone for the year. They were very evangelistic. Went to their service the first Sunday I was there. And the singing was atrocious. <laughs> and I thought, what have I wrought? <laughs> so the next time I went, I took a song leader with me. <laughs> we got better. A charge to keep have I. I. Let's see. You ready? Who you got? not Not here. Try again. He's not here either. (laughs) No, he's not. (laughs) Put his name back in. Draw one more. One more try here. Glad we have time here. <laughs> Jason, Jason, I got you a Starbucks card. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it nice? to win something. Hebrews chapter 11 is about winners. Need somebody to read for me. Is it Carter? No. No. You. What's your name? Brandon. My friend is Brandon Carter. So... Brandon, if you don't mind, do you mind? You can read? Good. Hebrews 11, start in verse 24 and read to verse 28. Tell us what translation you're reading from before you read, please. 24? Yes, sir. Thank you. Hebrews 11 is about winners. And there's probably more said about Moses than anyone else. Hebrews 11 is about ordinary, imperfect people who often failed, but who reached the goal. The purpose of this, these lessons is to encourage you to reach the goal, to succeed that way. When we talk about, as we have, doing great things for God, we may miss out on it. We may think that big equals flashy. I hope I've not communicated that. Great, in God's order of things, equals faithful. Psalm 84 and verse 10, a day in the house of the Lord is greater than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. First Corinthians 4 and verse 2, moreover is required of a servant that a man be found faithful. We're called to faithfulness. Over the opportunities entrusted to us. But for most of us, instead, we complain about the problems that come from the opportunity. For most of us, we're envious of the opportunities that others get instead of being thankful for the opportunities. That are presented to us. If I had that, if I could do that, if I was that, if they asked me to be a part of this, we're called to be faithful over what's entrusted to us. Whether it's on a stage in front of tens of thousands or a little place with five or six, be faithful. Whether well, you the leader of a nation like the guy we're fixing to study about or the leader of a family like Stephanus in First Corinthians chapter 15. Be faithful to the task the Lord has given you and he will use you. It is doubtful anyone in this room knows the name C.E. Wheeler. C.E. Wheeler. See, Wheeler was an illiterate preacher. <laughs> In the state of Alabama, <laughs> I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Aren't most of them? No, we're not. <laughs> Brother Wheeler would, he was not dumb. Brother Wheeler would, uh, would have his wife read him a text. And he memorized it as she read. He just couldn't read. He was dumb. He'd never been taught to read. So I went to preach a meeting in Walker County, Alabama. This illiterate preacher. The first night there were only a handful of people there. Put up a tent. One young boy came in, fifteen years old. He said, "Son, can you lead a song?" and he did and after the service that night brother Wheeler said son you did well go home and I want you to learn a couple of songs and tomorrow night I'd like for you to lead my singing for me and he did and the next night after he finished leading brother Wheeler said here's a few more songs am I leading singing for me through this whole thing ten days Fifteen-year-old boy led singing every night. Not a Christian. The last night, the boy said, uh, "Would you baptize me?" Only response of the meeting: that this illiterate preacher that you've never heard of. Only response. The young boy's name was Ophilius Nichols, better known as Gus Nichols, who baptized over 10,000 people. Poor Brother Wheeler. You know what he did? He was faithful over the few think he did a pretty good work that night didn't he? he he said I asked that boy to lead singing because I knew that if I asked him to lead singing he'd come back the next night <laughs> he was literate, he wasn't dumb and he said after he led the second night he did pretty well I said if you'll come back every night he said I knew he'd come back every night if he was leading singing faithful faithful that's our mission. So this afternoon, it's two twenty eight back home. <clears throat> this morning we're going to look at Moses, one of the great characters of your Bible. Moses got the Ten Commandments from God. He wrote the Decalogue, the first five books of the Bible. He led the children of Israel out of slavery. Moses was possibly the greatest man in the Old Testament. Yet God used him effectively, and you wonder why. What are the secrets to an effective life? Four points. Number one, be yourself. Be yourself. Don't try to be everybody else. I believe God has a purpose for your life. I believe God has a plan for you. My friend Baxter wrote a book called Every Life a Plan of God. Nobody can be you except you. Moses had to deal with this identity stuff right off the bat. In Egypt, the baby Jewish boys were condemned to die. So as you know, his mother put him in the Nile River. The text says it happened, I like that text, it happened that the daughter of Pharaoh was taking a bath and she happened to notice this little boy back in the palace, or back in, the, in the reeds, and she took him back to the palace and raised him as her own son. Right off the bat, Moses had an identity crisis. Born Jewish, raised Egyptian. At some point he had to decide, who am I? Am I a Jew or am I an Egyptian? And this is an important choice because the choice he made would determine the rest of his life. If he said, I'm an Egyptian, he, he would have had a life of ease, an outstanding career, a life of fame and fortune. There would probably today be books written about him and a pyramid built in his honor But if he said, I'm really a Jew, I'm really Jewish, he probably would be kicked out of the palace, sent to live with a bunch of slaves for the rest of his life. And at some point, Moses sees his people being mistreated. And his heart wells up. And he could not be silent, he could not quell his own conscience. So he made a decision that cost him the next 80 years of his life. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The word in the Greek literally means to reject, to deny, to totally disown. Moses cut himself off from a promising career as an Egyptian. He refused to live a lie. Instead, he wanted to be who God made him to be. There's something liberating about being yourself. The quickest way to an ulcer is trying to be somebody that you're not. Point number two, verse 25. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. Notice the word chose, literally to select, to decide. It's a mathematical term. The principle number two It's accept responsibility for your own life. Don't blame somebody else for your life. Don't say it's somebody else's fault. Do something about it. Decide. The fact is, I have choices I can make in life, and so do you. I have these options. I can choose to do God's will or not. God's given us freedom to decide how we're going to live. And what I choose today determines tomorrow. It's called accepting responsibility. And it's not in vogue in our culture in general. In verse 24, we see Moses refusing. In verse 25, we see Moses choosing. I love the principle, a negative followed by a positive. God doesn't just take the joy away and say, don't do this. He gives us something to do. And when you refuse to do one thing, you're choosing to do another. Verse 23, as a baby, God chose Moses. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. And they weren't afraid of the king's rule. God chose Moses as a baby, but verse 25, Moses chose God as an adult. That's one of the signs of maturity. When you make your choice, sitting in a church building, In West Palm Beach, Florida. And my uncle was talking to a group of high school students. I was 24 years old. And he said, You cannot inherit your faith. You must possess your faith. Your faith is your faith. It's not your parents' faith. As long as it's your parents' faith, you'll give it away when it's rough. Verse seventeen of Revelation chapter twenty two and the spirit and the bride say come and let him who hears say come and let him who is athirst come and whoever will, whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. God has chosen you. The question is have you chosen him? We got to make that choice. We don't like responsibility in this world. We like to play the blame game. Man's been doing it as long as man's been on this globe. He blames. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. We like to blame. We like to blame. We like to excuse. We like to say, this happened because of this. We don't like to take responsibility for what we have done. We like to pass the buck. Listen carefully. I've sat in classrooms and I've heard slavery discussed. And I've heard people say, you know, the Bible encourages slavery. Ephesians says, and you slaves be obedient to your masters. No, the Bible doesn't encourage slavery. The Bible encourages responsibility. The Bible says you're a slave. You can rebel if you want to. All that's going to do is get you killed probably. He said, you've got a choice, not whether you're a slave or not. You were born to that. Here's your choice. What are you going to do with what, what you got? We all could find excuses for what we're not. What are we going to do with what we got? Right? What are we going to do with who we are? Are we going to be what we can be for God where we are? Some of the greatest stories of mankind are people born into horrible situations that make the most of them. Look at verse 24. When did he make the choice? When he had grown up, well, the marks of maturity in life is when you start accepting responsibility for your life. People say my parents were Christians. My wife was a Christian. When I moved to Nashville, I had people say, oh, Brother Iron North baptized me, or Brother Jim Bill McIntyre baptized me, or Brother Batsubar baptized me. I don't care who baptized you. The question is, what are you going to do? Have you made a personal commitment in your own life? Moses chose. The fact of the matter is, ultimately, ultimately, no one can ruin your life except you. And if you're faithful, you will be effective. Satan can't. He doesn't have enough power. God won't. He loves you too much. So ultimately, only you can permanently mess up your own life. No matter what's happened to you in the past. No matter how hard the last six months have been in your life, the last four years have been in your life, the question is, am I going to be bitter or am I going to be better? Number three, establish a value system for your life. Establish a value system for your life. You have to settle the issue. What is really important, verse 26, look at it. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures in Egypt because he looked ahead to his reward. Noticed. Notice, regarded it means to weigh in the balance to consider the options. Moses considered God's will greater than the value of all the treasures of Egypt. Think about it. The richest, most powerful empire in the world. We still talk about it today. We still Ogle Ogle? Oogle? Ogle? Google. Something. We we still are amazed by its opulence today. We still bring remnants from that empire to America and people stand in lines in Memphis, Tennessee at 95 degree temperature to pay to walk in and see what they had then. That's how rich that country was. Moses made a decision. You know what? Moses didn't know how that decision would turn out. And if you make a decision to live for God, to sacrifice something for his cause, you don't know how it will turn out either. The valuation you do is probably bigger than you know. Values of life. What do men value? They value pleasure. I want to feel good. They value possessions. I want to be wealthy. I want to have a lot of money. They value power. I want to be famous. I want to be known. I want my name in lights. Most of the world are frantically searching for those things. Notice Moses. He had it made. He had everything people are looking for today. All wrapped up in the royalty of Egypt. They walked away to live a life with a bunch of slaves. Who would be silly enough for that? Someone who realized the value of, of people. The value of a relationship with God was greater than the value of things. Here's the lesson in Moses' life that we need to focus on. When you establish a value system for life, you have to say no to some things. And every time you choose one thing, you automatically turn against something else. Jesus said it this way, No man, No man can serve two masters. Moses decided that God's purpose was greater than popularity. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you think that title, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, would get him somewhere? Get any club in town, right? Go anywhere he wanted to. Big man on campus. Who are you? I'm the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm Pharaoh's grandson. Big man at the pyramids. But Moses knew that popularity doesn't last, that your picture can be on the cover of the Rolling Stone one week and the next week you can be in jail. One thing I like about Moses is he was not impressed by himself. He wanted God's purpose. I'd rather be a slave fulfilling God's purpose than the king of Egypt with all the popularity. Number two, he decided, first, God's purpose is greater than popularity. Number two, God's people are more valuable than pleasures. Verse 25, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. At that point, they're slaves in Egypt building the pyramids. Rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Given this situation, how would you react? Moses chose pain over pleasure. He chose discomfort over ease because he knew people were more valuable than possessions, than pleasures. He was on easy street. If he wanted grapes, he'd get grapes. If he wanted them peeled, they'd be peeled. If he wanted them chilled, they'd be chilled. If he wanted to serve to him, they'd ask one at a time or in groups. He could get anything he wanted, any time he wanted to. Any whim he wanted to be fulfilled by his own multitude of personal slaves. But Moses heard the cries of the people and he said, people are more valuable than pleasures. In order to do the right thing, he chose discomfort over Comfort. Why? Look at the text. Moses chose them over the pleasures of sin for a season. Listen carefully. Sin is fun. It is. That's what the text says. It's similar to a bummer. Everybody wouldn't be doing it. Would you sin if sin was painful? There's pleasure in sin, no doubt about it. But the text teaches us you reap what you sow, and the payoff of sin is sorrow. It's not worth it. Moses said, I'll go with God's people because people are greater than pleasures. He regarded disgrace, that's humility, for the sake of Christ is greater than the value of the treasures of Egypt. Somebody said he rejected the world's measure, verse 24, the world's pleasure, verse 25, and the world's treasure, verse 26. Number three, he considered God's peace more valuable than possessions. There are things more important than things. Somebody says you can't purchase happiness. Yes, you can. You can. I'll go out and buy me a new ski boat. I'll be happy for a little while until the next one comes along that's a little bit better. (laughs) Christmas is going to roll around and kids are going to be happy. but By mid-February, every gift they got is either broken or in the top of the closet. You can buy the greatest, latest new gadget that Apple introduces. And you'll love it until the next year rolls around and they got something new to offer. And then you're happy again for a short time. You can buy happiness, but it's temporary happiness. It doesn't last. That thing you just had to have two years ago, you don't even know where it is now. Or you're making payments on it and you wish those payments were gone and you'd give it up if you could get rid of the payments. Pretty soon... When, when I was in Russia, <laughs> we, we, it was kind of fun. We had uh, we went there to teach English. We'd sit in a room; there were thirty of us, and you'd sit in a room with two or three other people. And as instructor, you'd use that booklet to teach them English. I start talking to teach them English, and every t- class you'd have time at the end. You you have any questions? And we got home after the first day. Of the thirty of us and we were kind of debriefing the day and. What happened, and everybody started saying, I have all these questions, and I don't know how to answer them. And I thought, Yeah, I love questions. I love questions. I always have. So I said, Okay, let's do it. So I got an idea. So why don't we set up a separate room, a, a lecture hall? And one of us just stand up there and answer questions the whole day. And so when they're finished with their English class, you can tell them they go to class 101, and they can ask anything they want to. And I said, they said, well, who's going to answer the questions? And I said, I'd be happy to. And so every hour I would have between 100 and 300 people in the class. They'd ask the same question over and over again because they were coming in and going out. And I just said, you can ask anything you want to ask. I don't care what you ask. Anything, it can be about the Bible, it can be about the world. Anything you want to ask, you can ask. It's kind of dumb of me to do that, but I did. And they asked some great questions. And one day, Henry, taxi cab driver, Henry, he said, understand that in America, your cars have their own houses. And I said to my translator, what? He he said, I understand your cars have their own houses. I, I said, no. You can buy happiness, but it's only temporary. Moses said, I don't want that pleasure. I don't want those possessions. Because I have a worldview. I know it won't last. He's taking the long look. I mean, he's taking the long look. Do you see anything shocking Look at your Bible. Do you see anything shocking in verse twenty-six? Does anything stand out there? And if so, tell me what it is. Anybody? Anything appear in that verse that would surprise you? Yeah, Tony's got it. Christ. Wait! Wait a minute. How how did Moses, we're thousands of years, how did Moses see Christ? When I say he took the long look, I mean he took the long look. He saw him who is invisible. Moses said, there's something better coming than this world. And with the eye of faith, he saw Christ. Because he's looking ahead to the reward. Look at that word, looking. The Greek, it's a continual action, a greater perspective. Number four, never take your eye off the goal. Verse 27, by faith, vision is a matter of faith. Seeing is a matter of faith. Moses was seeing with the eyes of faith. He saw Christ. He did not fear the king's anger but he saw, look at it, he saw, see it? He saw him who is invisible. Remember early in the chapter faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He saw what you couldn't see, he saw the invisible. He saw Christ before Christ came to earth. He never took his eyes off that goal. There are enormous problems in the purpose of God for Moses. How are you going to transport two million Jews out of one country across another to a desolate place in a world that's a desert without food, without water? How do you get them in the promised land? How are you going to convince Pharaoh to let these two million slaves go? There were enormous problems to the purpose of God but he persevered because he saw beyond the problems to the solver of the problems. The problems as we talked about Noah were not Moses' problems, There were God's problems. All Moses had to do is keep his eye on God. I don't know what the problems it is you're dealing with in your life, but I will tell you this, all you have to do is keep your eye on God. Stop focusing on the problems. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll close here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul lists the stuff he goes through and he calls them he calls them light afflictions. You know what those light aff- Let me tell you. Paul, beaten three times nearly to death, shipwrecked twice, received 40 stripes, five times sick and in prison, beaten without food, without clothes, left totally alone, the care of all the churches. Light afflictions. It's a matter of perspective. Verse 16 Therefore Paul says we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We're persistent. We keep on though outwardly we're wasting away yet inwardly we have renewal every day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. God says Paul says God's purpose for your life is greater than the problems in your life. He endured Endured. He waited. He waited. Moses waited. He waited. He goes out in the desert and he marries a wife and he has kids and he waited. He waited. They're building pyramids in Egypt and slaves are building them and he sees them rising in the background higher and higher and he thinks of the opulence surely every day and he waited. And he waited. And he waited 40 years. Can I do it now, God? And he waited. How about now? How about this year, God? And he waited 40 years. He waited. And God rewarded. God rewarded. rewards faithful perseverance some of you men will not persevere you're going to see something someone and you're going to chase that thing that possession that person and they're going to lead you away from Christ And you'll never be proud of it. It won't bring you happiness. It will for a little while. But it won't bring you anything good. And you'll regret it. Let me tell you how long you'll regret it. I was sitting in the Woodline Church building in Birmingham, Alabama. Russ Ron, Rob Russell was teaching. Ron Russell was teaching. And Ron said, Here's what heaven's like. He said, if you took an ant and you took a string and you, you stretched that string from the earth to the moon and you got that ant and you, that ant picked up a grain of sand and it took it from the earth to the moon and then it walked back on that string and it picked another grain of sand up and it, it walked back to the, the moon and it, it did that time and time again until there was no more earth and then it took each piece of grain of sand and it made the earth again. The sun would just be coming up in heaven. Wrong. Engaging, captivating, fascinating, uh, problematic. At some point the string would have broken uh, but wrong you know why eternity is without time you, your arms are not big enough to wrap yourself around the mind of God we do not live in a world without time God is unfigureoutable. I live my world on time don't you I'm a preacher. I really live my world on time. Some of you thinking you thinking, no, you don't. <laughs> I live my world on time. I go to sleep on a time. I wake up on a time. I brush my teeth on the time. My little toothbrush has a two-minute timer on it. It beeps when I'm done. Everything I do is on time, right? How long does it take me to get there? Oh, about 30 minutes. Okay, I'll be there in about 30 minutes. Time time. Everything we do in life is about time. We're going somewhere time is no more. You make that decision to chase that person, that thing, that place, that object, that possession. Time will not tell how long you'll regret it. And it looks good. And she looks good. And it feels good. And it's nice there's not enough time. There's not enough time to regret that decision. Because you're going to a place where time is not. And the regret will be forever. But forever won't be forever because there is no forever. Because time doesn't exist, it will be forever. Moses chose. The great thing about being a Christian The great thing about living today is, guys, you get to choose. What will you choose? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the day. I pray so far these words have been what you'd want them to be. I pray we'll be convicted to live more for you and to make wise choices. In Jesus' name, amen.